Okay. Fuck it, let's do it. No, sorry, we won't lose time. Again, today, as you wanted, we go on uh, with Kegel. Uh, just a little bit the same thing, but we will move further, of course. I would like to begin with a friendly reaction to uh, yesterday's But You paper, this problem of negation, the three types of negation he listed. I would like to, I don't have such a, I cannot propose such a precise formalization, but I will just try to, as an introduction, to give you a brief idea what negation of negation means through a couple of examples in Hegel. Uh, let me first tell you, but we will talk about all of this much more later today, that we approached the crucial question at the end when someone, sorry, I forgot who, I think it was a woman's voice, I was tired, half asleep there, asked about you towards the very end about the problem of identity, what happens with identity and so on. And then, there, we would have approached Hegel. In what sense is every identity already a redoubled negation? Because that's Hegel's point. I mean, if you read, for example, Hegel's logic, it doesn't begin by identity. It begins by being, nothing to do with identity. Identity, as you may have noticed, it is, uh, occurs at the beginning of the logic of essence. It's already what Hegel calls a, a, a reflexive determination. That is to say, a mode of self-relating. When you say A is A, this already presupposes kind of a self-reflected identity. Hegel even uses, I quote it often, a wonderfully simple example which also includes a kind of logical temporality, trying to demonstrate that uh, in what simple sense identity is the highest form of contradiction. He plays on the uh, tension between form and content. He says, let us say, you say, a rose or a table is, then you expect some determination, a predicate. But you are doubly surprised when you get the same thing. A rose is a rose. And his point is that, uh, that identity functions as a void, in the sense that uh, identity means, in this sense it's a reflexive determination, you are not just a series of your properties. You are that X, that void you know. You are you means you cannot be reduced to your color, this, that, and so on and so on. In this sense, identity is already a redoubling of the thing. And to go a step further, identity always for Hegel involves basically, as but you hinted very nicely yesterday, a signifier. It's only a signifier which gives you identity. In what sense can this be understood? Oh, let's speculate a little bit. I appreciate good enemies, intelligent philosophers. Now I forgot his name, it's not Plantinga. Another very good of the modern Catholic philosophers made a wonderfully simple point which I claim is profoundly, profoundly uh, Hegelian. His claim is that there are no objects in nature. 
objects begin only with living beings. In what sense? Now, you will tell me, of course there are objects here. This is a glass, this is a table, and so on and so on. But if you abstract from us perceiving this table as a table, what right do you have, for example, to include, to say, this is a table, and for example, not to include this glass into the table. You will say, okay, the table holds together. But then, okay, in what sense is the table a unity? Why can't you also say this piece of wood, uh, this piece of wood, that metal part, you know, what you count as fun is not grounded in nature. It's totally arbitrary. This table has no identity in itself. It's totally arbitrary if you say a table, if you say no, this is not one object, it's two. The first moment of identity, which is why for Hegel, life already involves a minimum of self-reflexivity, is life. And it's something very mysterious in life. I agree here with, I think I mentioned her yesterday, that wonderful, okay, she has good and bad sides. The bad side for me is that she is part of that Gaia mythology. You know, Gaia, Earth, as an organism. Lin, do I pronounce it correctly? Mark, Guis, I'm never sure. Margulis? Margulis, yeah, probably, sorry. I'm not, uh, uh, you know, uh, her, uh, she, one of the focuses of her work are cells. Cell, yes. For, for her, cell is more elementary prior to uh, 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 animals, plants, and so on. The mystery of the cell is that there must be a, a minimum of self-reflection in the sense of how is it that through stupid natural interaction a border emerges? There you can really say, you know, cell means the minimal distinction between inside and outside. Like that. That's inside, that's outside. For a cell, which is the minimal form, again, of living organism, there you can draw the line. The moment you have life, but life, uh, life uh, presupposes this kind of a minimum of self-relation, which means you relate to others, but relating to others, sorry, yes? Well, then right away there's a problem of a virus, because a virus has all its functions, but only dependent on its relationship to another yeah, but, but I think you can solve this because, for example, even if a child, and I think this, I totally agree, sorry, is the lady here yesterday who asked Badiou the question of what about a child being, no, that's good because I totally disagree with her. <laughs> Believe me, I have to, uh, child is for me on the side of disaster, catastrophe, <laughs> not, not event. What I mean is that... Uh, I like those theories which are now very fashionable, I mean fashionable not in the bad sense, but in, in biology, to see a child in a womb before birth, fetus, not as some kind of, you know, organic blah blah, but as a, a, a terrorizing intruder, and to explain the placenta as a defense mechanism, so that they don't kill each other. That it's, some, that it's a terrifying shock, it's nothing natural, oh, child, and so on, no? Here I agree, at least here, if you are a feminist, give a proper due to Lacanians. Lacan's big motive is that woman is not mother, at her most fundamental. That, as Lacan puts it somewhere so beautifully, behind every mother there is a Medea, you know, who slaughters her children, no, that's true. So, uh, uh, okay, so my answer to you would have been, even if it's the most intense virus, 
or a child, you know. You can draw the line the moment you can show how the fetus, the child, relation to other is mediated by self-relation. Like, you contact the environment because you relate to yourself. Relate to yourself means in my body tells me I need food, this is why I, you know that, like relating, to put it precisely in these Hegelian speculative terms, when Hegel says relation to otherness is always self-relation, the living organism is the basic element here. So, what I'm saying is that uh, in this sense for Hegel, again, identity is a category of reflection, in the sense that it's not the most simple thing. You can talk about an identity only when you have a, the one, but the one as that, how to put it, unifying feature which cannot be reduced to properties. And already in Hegel you find this, this, where is negativity here, double negation? Ah, for Hegel, uh, this oneness, it's the function of the name, either concept or proper name, we will not go into that now, I know it's a crucial difference, to, to designate that oneness. You say, okay, this may be this, that, and so on, rounded, but basically it's a table. And Hegel's point is that, uh, you know, Hegel's famous saying, it was fashionable, he was not the first to say this bombastic rather statement, the, the word, the name, is the murder of the thing, no? There is an element of negativity in it. Precisely, if you want from the thing to extract, as it were, its identity, you name it, but in a way you kill it in the sense that you extract that name. Now, of course, now we come to the logic of desire. This is why Lacan links the so-called master signifier what he calls S1, to the series of what he calls knowledge ordinary signifier, and this is why he leads the master signifier to what he calls the object small a, this uh, surplus enjoyment, however we call it, which is precisely the name for that mysterious X, which is of course a mythic property which makes you what you are. How does this function? Allow me to repeat some old analysis of mine to make this clear. Lacan has a, a wonderful definition of a master signifier somewhere where he says something very precise. He says that the master signifier is the point where the signifier falls into the signified. Vaguely, it's not meaning sense. I know they are not the same. I know all the stuff about Zin, the Deutung, and so on. But what can this mysterious statement mean? It means that in a reflexive way, the name must, as it were, encounter itself in the designated object. It's constitutive of its identity. And that impossible objective feature, which would be the comfort of a name, is the object small a. For example, uh, you know, even, let me put it in extremely naive terms, but which are appropriate here, sorry, my God, I'm so impossible, I always have some kind of obscene, erotic uh, uh, stuff, but don't be afraid, I will not rape any of you, it's probably <laughs> simply because I'm really getting old and diabetic, and you know, when you no longer do it, you talk about it. <laughs> but let's say I'm in love with one of you. That's not true, you talked about it more when you were doing it. 
Sorry? Ah, no, I know what you are saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, 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 as a matter of fact, no, I, as a matter of fact, okay, you provoked me, it's your fault, let me go to the end. I couldn't stand people, okay, in my case, I'm not gay, women who want to talk, you know this, darling, say something, blah, 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 blah. no. When you fuck, you fuck. When you talk, you talk. <laughs> I hate this idea of whispering some... Making love is hard work for me. I can just... It's not bullshit if you do your work. None of that, oh, darling, uh, 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 whatever, fuck it. And, uh, but do you know that this is your choice? Uh, you provoke me, it's all his fault, I'm pure here, he provokes me. That, uh, even it would be nice to build a semiotic square, kind of a, uh, out of... Uh, unfortunately, it's done only for women, I don't think this is just, it should have been done only for men, but it's a wonderful analysis. A friend of mine, Dean McKennell, I know him because he is the husband of Juliet Flower McKennell, that San Francisco uh, Lacanian lady. And he did, he's also specialized in, he was the first, as it were, deconstructionist theorist of Judaism. And uh, a part of this, he's slightly weird guy, he did a very serious, social, I mean, analysis with all the data of the expression of, on women's faces, while they are screwed by their doing it, in hardcore pornography. He wasn't interested in the dirty things, what goes on down, but in, and he discovered something very precise that, as we all, all know, that it has nothing to do with any spontaneity. It's strictly codified. And then, I don't know the terms, he even told me that he contacted some guys who were involved in hardcore industry, and they told me they even have technical terms for it. So there are four expressions codified. One is, I cannot please throw <laughs> One is this simple, uh, uh, more, you know this, how should we call it, ecstatic trance, whatever. This is, of course, the least interesting. Then, the second one is, is ignorance. You know, some people find it charming when the woman, you know, like, fuck it, it doesn't concern me, like you, even one of the codified things is even that you, uh, the, the, the woman uh, is chewing a gum or whatever, just yawning, boring, like, haha, uh, uh, I ignore it. This ignorance, she's a baba. And there is something unique. A fatal woman has to pretend to be born ignorant, which is why, if some of you know Russian, it's a wonderful irony all Russian friends of mine uh, know about it. You know, every we opera lovers, every generation, we are lucky to encounter a lady, singer, soprano, who, my God, again, my main chauvinism, who is not this kind of a big fat lady where your worry is, will she manage to make the next step, and you are all the time in anxiety in the opera, who is relatively beautiful, no? And, uh, okay, every generation there is one or two. When I was very young, in the 60s, it was an Italian star called Anna Moffa. And it's all your fault. No, you provoked me. Now we can tell you a wonderful detail. I gave a talk at, at Munich München Opera and got hold of some old stage manager who knew her. And I heard a rumor about Anna Moffa. This is for me Lacanian ethics of desire. And she told me it's true. 
You know what was the rumor about her? Her career stopped relatively early in mid-40s. Now, I warn you, you can persecute me for harassment, this is hard. The idea is that she was extremely sexualized, acting in orgies all the time. And her specialty was to do fellatio on a series of men the same evening, swallowing everything. Uh, so then she detected troubles with her voice. She went to the doctor, and the doctor told her, you have to make a choice. Either you continue your singing career or orgies. No problem, she said, orgies. That's ethics, that's ethics. Okay, but let's go on. Now, more serious. The, the, the most beautiful considered today, one of these is the Russian, the dark one, Anna Netrebko. Now, it's a wonderful irony if you know a little bit Russian. Netrebko means she doesn't need it. Trebat, trebat is even, for example, in we, our Balkan territory, at least means we have Potrebna uh, Sahara water, which means she needs it like Sahara needs water. This is the extremely late shopping. Vulgar. So it's a wonderful way, the fatal beauty, but to have it in the name inscribed, fuck off, I don't need you, and so on. No? So again, that's the second position. The third position uh, and there is what I would have called in Habermasian terms instrumental activity. This, you know, this usually the lips clench like, uh, uh, my God, it's hard work. Let's do it. Then there is the fourth position, which is almost the best for me for turning me on, this kind of a dismissive, ironic smile. The woman looks you into the eye and smiles. <laughs> Is this all you can do? You know? <laughs> <this kind> of <coughs> and the wonder, and again, I spoke with the guys, and uh, it's, I even once started, wanted to construct a kind of a Habermasian logic of three types, instrumental reason, and so on. The whole logic of communication out of this, no, and so on. But it really works, and the lesson is much deeper than you think. My good friend, Robert Faller, who did the notion of interpassivity, an Austrian guy, it said that you cannot read, if you can, German, do it. He now published it as a book. He did a wonderful book called Illusion of the Others, Illusionen der Anderen. Who, the book, I tried to push it now uh, to be published into English. It did very well in German by Zurkamserlag. The problem is that in art circles, because he's most an art theorist, I don't know if you know it, I thought that we philosophers are the worst. But I discovered that art theorists are even worse. That there is such competition, you know, you belong to one clan, envy, and so on. So it was always sabotage by others, and so on. So, okay, what he, the, he has a very nice idea that the things that we do as a transgression, sex, you get drunk, you swear, and so on, you don't, it's not that out of custom you behave properly, but then when you can no longer control yourself, you explode. That they are basically, that it's strictly codified and that you do it to belong to a group, to Im it's always an acquired taste. For example, drinking. It can be demonstrated. He told me, he spoke with some doctors that, you know, and okay, I'm not only... A woman, as I said yesterday, I, you can see that I'm a little bit crazy, and there are two theories in Slovenia, I'm serious now. One is that mentally I am 
in early puberty 12 years. The other is that I'm like 8, 9. And the general agreement is that I'm regressing back to So uh, uh, I tend to agree with it that, for example, drinking alcohol, you do get attached to it. But the way you begin is regularly first, you don't like it, it's like out of you know to keep up with your, with your peers and so on and so on. It's to be part of a group, to imitate. Smoking is the same. And happily for me, maybe I'm still at that level and not, be, not because of any, how should I put it, uh, health uh, arguments or what. I don't drink and I don't smoke, but because I simply don't like the taste, how should I put it. I don't get it what's so good in alcohol. Okay. There is also a Stalinist, uh, while you are looking, you think crazy guy didn't yet discover what life is about. <laughs> but I am, uh, no, there is also, of course, another aspect. Privately, I'm a, a, a Stalinist paranoiac, and my idea is if you get drunk, you lose control, and the enemy can attack you. No, one must be on the watch all the time. <laughs> okay, but uh, uh, let me go on. So, the idea, a beautiful one of Robert Fowler, is that the same goes even for sexuality. And that the intent, and believe me or not, I read some, uh, sorry, I spoke even with some, how do you call them, uh, biologists, sexologists, those who reduced sex pleasure to organic procedure and try, and they claim that from the purely organic standpoint, it's definitely without any doubt that masturbation is more pleasurable. And I can see it. You just sit down, you do it, you totally determine the rhythm that from the pure standpoint of intensity of pleasure, even orgasm and so on. I mean, doing it with another human being is unpractical, ridiculous, and so on and so on. So it's only the phantasmatic aspect which sustains, of course, in reality, the much greater pleasure and so on. So, sorry, yes? Ah, was your experience different? <laughs> please, feel, feel free to tell us how it was with you. Yeah. No, sorry, please. No, sorry. Yeah. This is called creative classes. New creative teaching, sorry. Well, you are falling like, where did I finish with this madness? It's your fault. No, his fault. He's guilty of everything up there. He asked me. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, it's like after your GS one, right? I can't just do it. No. Yeah. In the past, in yeah. he says that he found it with his patients that even when they were having sex with their partner that they loved, they were still fantasizing about somebody else or something else. Yeah, absolutely. That's the basic thing. And yeah. That was almost impossible. So, I mean, even yeah. the sex act itself becomes masturbatory. Yeah. Oh no, I've written about it, I'm just afraid to repeat, I know that I already repeat myself too much, but that's how you should read, sorry, you have a comment, would you share, I, let's pretend we are in California, would you like to share your experience? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll, I'll, I'll share, I'll share Yevtushenko's experience, I heard Yevtushenko <coughs> recite and he said, love is mutual masturbation in manure. Why manure? Manure like shit. Why, why? This must be a specifically Russian touch. Why, why manure? It brings together the sublime and the ridiculous. Ah, yeah. There wasn't Borat. Yes. No, no, no. What I, what I, what I wanted to say uh, uh, is that this is, but again, that's elementary. This is what, uh, what, uh, what Lacan means with there is no sexual relationship that it's never you and your partner alone. There 
has been a mediation of fantasy. It's almost never, I will explain immediately, it's almost never just you and the partner. It's the way you fantasize. But for Lacan, in this sense, this is my old joke, if we understand usually uh, masturbation as sex with an imagined partner, you masturbate, but you imagine doing it with another. Then real sex is masturbation with a real partner. That is to say, the structure is that of a masturbation. The real partner is the one you dream about, and so on and so on, which incidentally explains nicely the experience which I hope you also had. I had it often that it's horrible. In, I'm sincere now here, but it's not being disgustingly intimate, so I can tell you. In the middle of sexual act, doesn't it happen to you that you somehow, how should I put it, I hope not too often, you simply disconnect. You lose contact, you start to observe yourself objectively, and you get, what am I doing, this stupid gesture? You know, like, you disconnect. That's where you disconnect from your fantasy. You are back into the stupid thrown into the stupid reality. So what this, um, but Lacan's point here, that's important, is not here Lacan and me with him, we are nonetheless more romantic for love. I claim that in authentic love, it's not only that. In authentic love, you reach to the other. Authentic love is not merely, uh, or to be put it in more romantic, so I, I don't agree with those like the Chicago girl, how is she called, Laura Kipnis, who wrote a book against love, claiming love is, and it's fashionable in some radical circles to claim that love plays the same role as procreation in standard Catholic doctrine. In standard Catholicism it was sex is illicit if it doesn't at least ultimately lead towards procreation. She claims today's censorship is just displaced. It's love doesn't, uh, sorry, sex should be, is fully legitimate only if it is an expression of love and so on and so on. Well, I don't think that if you don't hurt anyone, why not have it an occasional whatever you want? I cannot do it. I'm a very old-fashioned romantic. But what I want to say is that uh, when Lacan speaks about this, you know, reaching out to the real other and so on and so on, that's, Lacan is here very very romantic. He's as far as possible from this, uh, how should I put it, cynical, pseudo-psychoanalytic view that what we really want is only the brutal, raw sex, but that, uh, but we just sublimate it with all these complicated fantasies. No, for Lacan it's the opposite. It's the brutal, raw, se raw sex which is not material enough. Because you don't really relate to other, you basically just stage your fantasies and so on and so on. It's very difficult to really accept the other, not just somebody who, how should I put it, who fits your fantasy. And for Lacan, and I agree with here, that's love. Love for Lacan, there is a big change here in Lacan. Uh, all good interpreters know. Somewhere till the early 60s, Lacan... Uh, reduced love to an imaginary narcissistic illusion. You know, all this shit, in loving the others, you really love yourself in the other, love, and then Lacan played on imaginary love versus desire. Desire is the authentic thing. But later, Lacan changed the view, claiming that in love, 
love, love is, as she puts it very nicely, love is the way the real of drive descends or gets into the symbolic order. So what you quoted about that uh, in real sexual act we fantasize and so on and so on, this is not, again, for Lacan, uh, this is not, uh, this is not, uh, this is not, this, this is not all sex, this is not love. He doesn't devalue love. You know which example I use in one of my books? If you saw the movie, you will immediately get it. Why also, Lacan says first that, especially if he specifies for him, this is typical male sexuality, phallic masturbatory jouissance. But for woman, it's more, it's more jouissance of the other. And don't confuse this with the false version of Lacan, where some people think that Lacan's point is this, that women have some mystical outside language experience. No, there's a movie which makes this point perfectly. Uh, or even a couple of movies. Did you see, for example, Bergman's persona, which I don't like, I prefer silence. But do you remember, I think some 20 minutes into the movie, B.B. Anderson is telling to the one who is the other, who is still silent, reports on some small orgy on the beach years ago. Bergman was wise enough not to include any flashbacks. And it's an extremely erotic scene. This would be jouissance of the other. That it, talking about it gives you basically more pleasure almost than the thing itself. You know which movie works this way? You have very nicely this content. Did you see he's a little bit too pretentious? I don't like it too much. But sometimes he's not totally stupid. Uh, did, uh, Lars von Trier breaking the waves. Yeah. You re uh, remember the pact that the guy and Emily Watson make? She should screw around to tell him. He exploits her. His pleasure is masturbatory. He needs her as an instrument to provide him fantasies so that he can masturbate. But for her, it's reasons of the other. As he makes it very clear, while she actually seduces other men, it's disgusting for her. Her only pleasure is tell, telling him about that. Yes? What about the movie Sex Lies and, and Videotape? I know, I know, but uh, uh, I, uh, I will not bluff here. I have forgot about that movie. Because I don't like Andy McDowell. <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm very vulgar. Some of yeah. Idea of watching yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that's more. But that's more. Who is the guy? James Spader, no? The way he does it, it's more. Okay, you can also read it as a kind of a how he, the guy, slowly breaks out of this masturbatory circle and so on, gets into love. Yeah. Uh, you can, but okay, let's nonetheless, now we were totally lost, let's go back to the main line. Yes, so, my, my point, uh, we were, where were we? Ah, yes, the jump was from this uh, uh, fantasy and so on, and then to this uh, point, four types of women's expression. Uh, incidentally, this also raises an interesting question, don't be afraid, nothing tasteless will follow now, about uh, hardcore Pornography, you know, what's your point of identification there? <laughs> I absolutely don't think that you identify if you are a man, a heterosexual man, I'm now talking about the elementary situation, heterosexual man watching a heterosexual straight movie. 
I don't think that the point of identification is, uh, is that you identify with the guy who is... No, that guy is pure instrument, which is why they usually use some sailors with tattoos, etc., which incidentally for me is extremely destimulating and so on. Because I... I'm very conservative here. Basically, I'm against hardcore pornography and I'm against even prostitution. I mean, no. Women can do whatever they want. I just don't think... Okay, some friends try to convince me I buy this, that... Maybe, I don't know, there are women who relate to man, they earn in prostitution in the same way that psychoanalysts, who are, we all know, prostitutes of the mind, no? uh, relate to payment. As Lacan puts it very nicely, the function of money is to allow you to keep out of a certain libidinal circuit. Why do you have, basically, to pay the analyst? So that he will not get drawn and become just another of people in whose, uh, of the, that circle in whose traumas you are involved, and so on and so on. So, I was told, but it's up to women to say it, I, I don't know, that, that if you, and I think this is a totally re respectable position, if you just want raw sex and hate any involvement, emotional, that maybe that's how money can work. It's a kind of a guarantee of not getting involved. And it works this way. Let me give you, don't be afraid, no obscenity, a pure <laughs> clinical example. What was Freud's mistake in his most famous case, uh, the treatment of Wolfman? You know Wolfman, the Russian nobleman? After October Revolution, he lost money, and Freud was too good. Freud helped him. Instead of Wolfman paying him, Freud gave him some money to survive. The result was clinically catastrophic. A big regression into paranoia, in the sense of, you know, because if you are this borderline, he's basically some kind of borderline case. You cannot say that he is really bad. But it triggered in the 20s uh, regression to paranoia. Because Freud was all of a sudden, by paying him money, Freud lost this analytically neutral position. So it, this triggered immediately involvement Paranoia activity in the sense of why is Freud giving me money? This famous Lacanian void. what does he want? Is that kind of plot to control me? Does Freud want me to marry his daughter or whatever? You know, in, this is why you have a serious relapse, and then it's only later he got he, he got Wolfman in the late mid-20s, another analyst, an American one. She made, was made famous by that movie with Jane Fonda, Pentimento. You know, with, uh, with, uh, Jane Fonda plays there uh, the Dashiell Hammett's wife, the writer, what was her name? Lillian, Lillian Hellman. But the uh, Vanessa Redgrave character, that leftist communist who was also a psychoanalyst in Vienna, you know, her, you know who is the model of that? Muriel Gardiner, a pupil of Freud who was in Vienna in the 20s. That's the real-life model of... and. Uh, uh, she then set things straight, cured, uh, she then cured Wolfman, and then it was surprising, you know, he survived till, till, early, till early 50s in Vienna, and so on. But so, what I wanted to say is that maybe it works like this, 
But nonetheless, how should I put it? Don't you think there is so much X and maybe there are some cases, so friends tell me, where you have a, how do you call the guy, Macron, the guy who controls a prostitute, who? Pimp, yeah. Pimp, yeah. Maybe there are some ideal relationships of a nice pimp who really protects you, but, you know, as they say, I would like to see it, no? And I would like to really hear the entire story, how should I put it, no? I'm, uh, 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 what I found much more interesting as a problem is male prostitution. Because you know why? Because men had to prove it with erection and so on. No? So how can you link money being... Okay, but we are getting lost in it. Let's go back to Hegel and all this stuff. So the point of... That's where we started this digression. The point of Robert Fowler is how sex, all these, as it were, wild outbursts, that they are strictly, as Lacan would have put it, an affair of the big other. They are not as it were, spontaneous explosions of our innermost blah, blah, blah. We have to learn them. These intimate transgressions are even more codified, and I noticed this with some of my friends, that uh, it's a little bit like, you remember the tasteless, tasteless story I was telling you, that Albanian soldier, when we went into mother, mother, sister, mother, it was totally ritualized, a little bit of obscenity, it was kind of obscene duty. We have to go through this, and, and maybe I am a madman here, I accept it. But I noticed that that's how, that these are my relationship with some of my friends. When we meet, for example, my good friend, the Jewish anti-Zionist cinema maker, Udi Aloni. When we met, we first go to obligatory 10 minutes extremely vulgar, humiliating each other, you dirty Jew, how are you doing? That's to give you an idea of this really nasty obscenities. He always mocks me and tells me, you know this disgusting myth about Jews of that they eat Christian babies, children. He told me, come to me to, come to, me to dinner. I told him, no, I don't dine with Jews, never be Jew with private. Then he tells me, but I will serve you a good Christian baby. Then I tell him, no, the last time you cheated, you bought a discount, refrozen Christian baby. Then he said, I promise you, you know, and we go through this, and the perversity is that we both experience it as a kind of a ritualistic duty. Then after five minutes we say, okay, we did our duty, now we can talk normally. No? <laughs> you, that's how, that, this is what Lacan means, the role, of, the role of the big other and so on, the unconscious is outside. If there is a thing Lacan is radically opposed to, it is precisely this idea that your desires or whatever are, how to put it, deep within you. Okay, let's now nonetheless go back to the main line. Uh, negativity and all that. Uh, where were we? With this uh, self-negation, uh, yes, how the signifier falls into the signified. Uh, it is, the way I explained it, in the sense that, okay, let me take a simple example, uh, antisemitism. When I developed this in my, some of my early books, maybe you know, if you, you know the joke, if you read my book, but it's now half forgotten, but it's sad, because I think it's much better than some of my books which are still in print around, tearing with the ne negative. I take there the example of, precisely, of uh, anti-Semitism, uh, 
in the sense of what makes you anti-Semitic? If you say Jews are dirty, exploiting you, whatever, all the properties an anti-Semitic subject attributes to a Jew, it's not enough, I claim, to be anti-Semitic. You must turn it around. You are anti-Semitic if you say you are dirty exploiting because you are a Jew. And then if I ask you, but what is that X? You say, I don't know, it's that mysterious something in you more than you. Like, that, like it's the same joke as with, for example, when you fall in love with a woman. Or with a man or with whatever. Uh, uh, you, know, you know, this is an old joke, but it's obviously true. You know that uh, if you can, if, you know, this eternal question, tell me why you love me. Of course, the point is that if you can answer the question, there is no love. Because the moment you can say, okay, I made a mental account, no, minus, your teeth are not quite straight, your ass is a little bit too narrow, whatever, or white, plus, your breasts are beautiful, your mouth, blah, blah, eh, eh, there are much, much more pluses than minuses, so let's do it, it's out, it's not love. Love, mu love must be so that you don't simply say, I love you because this, 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 but all the real properties become, in your experience, of course, an expression of, there is some, as Lacan likes to put it, there is something in you more than you. I don't know what, but on behalf of that X, I love you. Uh, which is why, the way this is confirmed, this is a nice melodramatic detail, I read it in this kind of, a, you know, keeps love counseling uh, uh, reply to readers' answer, uh, uh, to readers' questions. That this is right. And this effectively is the experience of most people, I was told. That let's say you flirt with a guy or a girl and you are still undecided. Symbolically, the, when do you fall in, love, fall in love? In the sense of, my God, I am in love. As a rule, it's through an imperfection. It's not that you say, oh my God, so many good things, now I love him or her. It's that you note some small imperfection, a clumsiness, the way she or he spills the milk, a too loud, stupid laughter, and then it has the form of, fuck it, instead, in spite of that, I nonetheless love him. That's how love always emerges as this kind of, in spite of, I love. It needs an index of imperfection. So, uh, this is why, incidentally, this is a nice vulgar story, but it's true. I read some 20 years ago when they were still in, young, a kind of a very stupid uh, uh, opinion poll in one of these city journals. They asked thousand men, blah, blah, like, whom would you prefer as wife? Uh, Cindy, the two beautiful at that point, Cindy Crawford or, uh, or, or who was the other one? Uh, uh, Claudia Schiffer. Cindy Crawford won. And they gave the answer, like, Claudia Schiffer is too perfect. Cindy Crawford has that sign there, like, it shouldn't be a perfect woman. There must be a small sign of imperfection. But what I want to say is that uh, for Lacan, in libidinally relating to other people, that's my point now, the name stands for that X. You are not only that, that, that. You are a name. Okay, we try to be objective. I hope, is any, is any 
Carla here or Cristina. Okay, so I can use the name. <laughs> I will not be accused of that. Like, uh, you know, also when you say emphatically, Carla or Cristina is not just beautiful, she simply is Cristina. The name tautologically refers precisely to that something more. It's the same when you say a Jew is a Jew. If you are anti-Semitic, you say, however they appear to be normal, there is something I don't know what in them. And uh, Now, why does here signifier for it fall into the signifier? Ah, here I will give you an example that I use in the early book, and I, it's still my favorite. You know, in socialism, we had a wonderful joke. Uh, you know, first, you should know that it's originates from Poland, I think, this joke. Do you know that, uh, you must know that, the, maybe you know that, part of the official communist ideology was that new socialist society is the synthesis of all that was the best in the entire history. So the joke went like this. Commun uh, communism, socialism takes from, from, from tribal primitive societies, prim primitivism, it takes from ancient antique societies slavery, it takes from uh, medieval society feudal domination, it takes from capitalism exploitation, and it takes from socialism denial. But you see the point. The name must be included into the series. And I claim exactly the same goes for anti-Semitism. It's clear that the figure of the Jew in anti-Semitism is a kind of an impossible standing for, for, for class struggle. Every, this is elementary Marxist, but I agree with it, analysis. Why? Because if you look closely at the features attributed to the Jew, they are totally inconsistent, they are an impossible combination of upper level and lower level. Jews are rich, exploiting us. They are uh, too intellectuals, too hardworking. But at the same time, Jews are supposed to be sexually seducing, dirty, not washing themselves, and so on and so on. They are literally a fetish. Like, you know, like the denial, rather, disavowal of class struggle. So, uh, it's... So, you can say that, of course, now I'm talking about the anti-Semitic figure of the Jew, that it's exactly the same there. Anti-Semite, in his image of the Jew, takes from rich capitalists' exploitation, from poor people their dirtiness, from promiscuous people their sex drive, and from the Jew the name. <laughs> but again, this reversal, when I said... It's not just that Jews do this and that in anti-Semitic imagination, but you turn it around. They do this because they, you do this because you are a Jew. This means, again, that what Lacan calls the object small a is produced. That mysterious X, something in you, the mystery of what is a Jew, and so on and so on, which makes you. I will talk about this a little bit in the evening, because uh, the, the mystery here, it's a very interesting one. Is if you are looking into the roots of the Holocaust, is how things radically changed precisely when Jews were, and this is a great achievement of, uh, of uh, French Revolution and Napoleon, in spite of all other things, when 
Jews became, how to call it, politically emancipated. No, at least officially, no longer quotas and so on. Although I'm well aware how long the de facto apartheid and quotas for the Jews last. For example, did you know that at Princeton University in the United States, I was told it was still early 60s, that there were unwritten quotas, not more than so many Jews, or one of my most tragic but beautiful experiences, and this makes you nonetheless a little bit softer on communism, is I met in Israel an old communist Jew. And still, he was celebrating Stalin and so on, privately, of course. No, and I asked him, blah, 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 and we're a little bit crazy, Stalin got anti-Semitically and so on, and he told me something very primitive. Uh, very, not primitive, sorry, simple but beautiful. He told me that he was a Polish Jew from Poland, and that he told me, we cannot imagine how anti-Semitic Poland, incidentally, it still is today, very much, no, was just before World War II. He told me that there were at Warsaw University where he was studying, if, if you have this big lecture hall, on the top left, reserved benches for the Jews, up there. And also, and this nonetheless nice. He told me, the only non-Jewish people who always came to us Jews and shook hands and so on were the communists. Huh? That's nice, nonetheless. He told me, he simply, whatever you say against communists, okay, now you can here defend communists but still be against Stalin when you take into account that, I don't even know this, that the fate of the Polish Communist Party in those purges of the late 30s is probably the most terrible of them all. You know, when Stalin was doing the purges in different communist parties, he usually killed most of the leadership. But with regard, I don't know, was he already planning the division of Poland with Hitler or what, but his, his plan was a little bit more specific with Polish communists. He simply wanted to kill them all. <laughs> the plan, basically, apart from a couple of hundred to the entire Polish communist party, all the members he could hold on was, they were all killed by Stalin. But what I want to say, let me go back, is that, again, uh, is, is that how you see, uh, or let me give you another example to see how ideology works, which I also like very much, is the same mechanism of, of master signifier. Uh, uh, you saw the movie, I hope, Joss. I don't like it very much, Spielberg. Now you know that, interpreters well in this stupid problem, what does, what does the killing shark symbolize? What does it stand for? Is it, I don't know, you have leftist readings where they say it stands for, I don't know, big capital, whatever. You have rightist readings where they claim it's either fear of natural catastrophe, it's fear of immigrants, whatever. Incidentally, you know that Fidel Castro likes the movie, and he says, it's not so clear to me, it's clear, it's uh, sharks means the sharks of the great capital, it's American, whatever. But I claim that it's wrong to ask this question. The point is that it means all and nothing. It does an exemplary ideological operation, the movie. The point is that, of course, an average citizen has all these fears. You fear being screwed up, like now in this financial crisis, by the banks. You fear immigrants will attack it. If you are racist, you fear I don't know what. You fear earthquake nature. But what the movie does is, as it were, replace all these fears with one signifier, empty 
It's like the Jew, the shark. Which the point is precisely that you can have one clear object, things become clear, and but still you can which unites the inconsistent multiplicity of your fears. It's exactly the same again with anti-Semitism. Imagine Germany in the late 20s, economic crisis and so on. People had, had all types of fears. They were afraid of being exploited, ruined by banks. They were afraid of sexual promiscuity, blah, blah, whatever you want. What Hitler did was to offer them one, the name, by saying, behind all this there is a Jewish plot. It, it means all these fears can be focused in this one figure. And this is what Lacan means, nothing mysterious, by signifier without signified. This it's empty because, as I told you, apropos of the Jew and so on, or socialism, all the actual properties are taken from here and there. The only thing that is original, added, added to it, is the name. And the empty name, the Jew. Of course, Jews are not empty. Now I'm talking about anti-Semitic image of the Jew. And it's an extremely delicate question, but interesting. You know, this historical question, how should I put it? Why were the Jews chosen to be Jews? That is to say, why were the real Jews chosen, elevated, unfortunately, to play the role of the Jew in the anti-Semitic imagination? One can say a lot here, but it's a dangerous topic. Why? Because on the one hand, it's too easy to say it's totally contingent. It could have been anyone else. On the other hand, if you give reasons in the wrong way, you may end up half justifying it, I should it, no? It's a, it's a tricky question, I know. But uh, to go back, all I wanted to show to you is how this would be the Hegelian point about identity as self-reflective, about how you have a multitude of real properties, uh, like... Uh, like socialism, you live miserable, people exploit you, and so on. You add just the name, the name unites it all into the one. The name is an empty name, not empty in the sense it means nothing, but in the sense that what it adds is just performatively itself as a name. All content is taken from elsewhere. Now you will say, but names do designate something. There must be something which is the objective counterpoint to this empty signifier. That's what Lacan calls uh, object small a. And you know, this is how, again, we operate. When, again, when you say, I love, who was my choice ten minutes ago? Ah, Christina, Carla. No, Carla is, you know why I avoided Carla? I really love it. Too, too. First, I hate Carla Bruni. She's not my type, to make it very clear. Uh, but point two, it raises too many real hopes with me, like, I still like those early uh, thrillers by John Le Carré, you know where the big enemy was, Carla. Carla was the name of that mysterious head of KGB who did it and so on. So don't mess with Carla, there is real love there. <laughs> but that, uh, 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 what I mean is that, uh, uh, you know, all I, when you say this pathetically, Carla is Carla, it means it's not just the bunch of properties, it's the one as it were. And this, so this, in this sense, we have here, if you want, 
a negation of negation. You start with an object which doesn't yet have full identity, that would have been the position, but it's nothing. It even doesn't yet have the identity. Then, you, this mass is negated, every determination is negation through determinate properties, beautiful, nice letter, sorry, for blah, 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 and then you negate the negation, Christina, or whatever. You, you add a name. The name, in this sense, signifier, the name falls into the signified. In this sense, for Hegel, for example, the identity is a reflective category. Now, I'm sorry we don't have time to go into this because many critics have noted, and this is a serious debate in Hegel studies, the problem is that Hegel introduces terms as concepts, identity difference, only at the beginning of the second book of logic, logic of essence. But he uses them from the very beginning. So what does this mean? Is Hegel inconsistent? Should we say that from the very beginning he presupposes something, some conceptual determinations that he did effectively bring? I mean, this brings us to this, to the intricate topic of the consistency of Hegel's logic and so on and so on, which, which would have been too much. But that's my first point that I want to make to, with you. And here we don't have time to go to it, but please don't misunderstand me. Alain is my best friend, but you know what's for me a true definition of friendship? I saw a German, I love them, Nazi melodrama, you know that? The big hit and Goebbels was wise here. In Nazi Germany were musicals and melodramas. Goebbels knew very well you shouldn't feed the population just with stupid propaganda. No? Okay, and in one of them, the actress is a kind of a spoiled girl who has a fiancé and she humiliates him, mocks him all the time. Fiancé is a rich guy from upper classes, so the father of this girl tells her, you shouldn't treat him like this, he will drop you, whatever, I want you to marry him. You know what she answers? But I love him, and if I love him, I can do whatever I want. To him. I mean, first uh, I put it, uh, there is an element of truth in it. So, in other words, I love but you, so let me say all bad things I want. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, 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 all that stuff that he was making with intensity and so on and so on. I claim that a little bit, a lesson of Hegel would not hurt him. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that this aspect of, although he knows about it, we have a long debate here. You remember how at the end, answering, he said, yes, identity in that, the bad world, the, the, the intuitionist world, yes, identity is symbolic, and so on, and so on. But he oscillates here. For example, uh, in, this also would have been the answer to one of your questions. Ask him this, and it's a friendly question. I mean, he will be glad to answer you. Uh, because one of you, I don't know if you are here, uh, asked uh, in him a simple but precise question. And I like these simple, precise questions because they are the nastiest, in the sense of they are the really hard questions. Like, how do you know that an event is an event? This is the eternal question uh, that Badiou is attacked for. Like, how do you distinguish an event from a pseudo-event? Usually, politically, what is behind here is Heidegger. Because for Badiou, Heidegger is an example of getting 
fascinated, seduced by a pseudo-event. Looking for a revolution, he thought he found it in the Nazi revolution. So how do you distinguish it? Uh, I don't think that you can really catch him here. He has written closely a precise definition of a site when, where an event emerges. You know, when he said when, what he didn't develop yesterday, and please press him on this not to catch him, but this is but you at his best. When he distinguishes within the multitude of a world, what he calls a world, a so-called eventual size, what, like what he called minimally uh, the non-existence. The, he, you, once even sometimes he uses the wonderful name of, uh, of, of symptomatic torsion, an element which is formally part of the set but lacks any definite properties to be properly located within the set. It's as if the excess of the set. Sometimes he uses the term surnumerary or whatever. You know, it cannot be, it is included, but cannot be properly counted. So, in other words, that's crucial to understand him. It's not just that, just a multitude, sorry, multiplicity, he would have shot me for this. <laughs> multitude is negative, you know, you don't mention this, no? It's multiplicity, Incidentally, did you get his, his wonderful point there, apropos multiplicity? It's a very nice position. I think he is right there. His idea is that, and it's again a very Hegelian, is that multiplicity is original. Ontologically, you don't start with one and then you say, okay, we have one, one, two ones, we go on, on. No, originally the many, the multiple is original, and now you will say, but fuck it, I'm sorry, I'm, now I will be really nasty, I'm using these expressions and gestures so that you will be able to understand me to, to <laughs> sorry, whatever I say is that, uh, uh, now you will say, you, uh, is imagined you, the stupid partner that I imagine, we always think like this, now you will say, but wait a minute, if you have multiple, it must, multiple is by definition many ones. No, his point is no, it goes endlessly. You analyze the multiple, you go further, there are always many. You never, and if anything, today's quantum physics makes exactly the same point, that you, you will never reach the atomic zero level. So, uh, his very nice theory is that the uh, correlate of multiple is not one but void, zero. And that you, that one comes after. One is the result. You must do very specific operation between, he describes them, between multiple and zero. Basically, this would be the Lacanian solution. I'm not sure he agrees to it that uh, you arrive at one if you count by counting nothing. By, by counting nothing. Okay, but that's more the problem of Frege. I don't know if you know this, it's a wonderful, crucial debate, the notion of suture, suture which was introduced by Miller way back in Jacqueline Miller, and then Badiou wrote a polemics against it, which is, I think, the big debate. But let me go on. So, uh, as, uh, so again, I don't think that this reproach holds, because the way to distinguish pseudo-event from event is precisely how they relate to this 
point of symptomatology, point of inconsistency. That's the first ontological premise which he sometimes elaborates, maybe not enough, is that every totality has its symptomal point. And uh, this can be put wonderfully in Lacanian notions. It means what? It means that every structure is self-reflexive, which means that it, it... Let's take a classification. You know, at the beginning of his... What's the stupid English title? The Order of Things. Le Moe Le Chaux. That uh, Foucault refers to that Borges' famous classification of dogs. White dogs, fat dogs, all dogs which are owned by the emperor. And then at the end, all the dogs who are not included in this list. That's the structural logic. That you... Uh, I have to put it, there must be a standing within a structure of what is not included in the structure. You must get this minimal reflexivity. Now you will tell me, uh, this is high theory, what does it mean? Ah, I will give you a nasty example, which I use sometimes in my work, from Marxism itself. I claim that what is called Asiatic mode of production is such an empty reflexive sign. That is to say, it is clear if you read Marx really closely, in detail. It is clear that what really fits his conceptual scheme are the standard, well-known, uh, uh, how do you call it, pre-class societies, tribal whatever, uh, slavery, feudalism, capitalism, and whatever shit comes after, who knows, no? But then, of course, Marx has specific ideas, uh, despotism and so on. But if you look at closely at it, what he calls Asiatic mode of production is basically a container where he throws practically everything which doesn't fit any of the others. You know, like everything goes there. From, from ancient China to Egypt to Latin, I mean, ancient Inca and so on, Latin America empire. So you see the paradox. This is a term which appears to refer to something positive, but it's really just a negative container. The only, ultimately, you, all this wealth of determinations, yes, Chinese, ancient Chinese empire, Hindu, whatever, shouldn't deceive you. It's basically just a negative container. And this would have been then the symptomal, this excessive symptomal point. So, I think that the reproach, and I'm not here dropping my topic, because this is how Hegel's logic works. This is Hegelian reflexivity. Uh, the way that you, I think, can answer triumphantly this reproach, but how do you know, let's be concrete, for example, how do you know that why October Revolution was an event, if it was, for me it was, I give you freedom of choice. But I, <laughs> I you know that wonderful aggressive statement of Lenin, where some guy protested, oh, can I have the freedom of choice to say what I want? You know what Lenin answers. I definitely give you the freedom of choice to say the stupidities you want to say. <laughs> but then I take to myself a freedom of choice to shoot you for what you are saying. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, sorry, let me go on. So, uh, 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 it's clearly that they relate differently to what but you called yesterday this the inexistent. Because this, what he calls, shift from inexistence to the 
Maximum existence happens only in an event. In Nazism, the symptomal point is just mystified cover-up. In other words, let's class struggle. At least in principle, let's forget about the shit that actually happens. In a communist revolution, workers effectively, I'm not saying they do, should become or whatever, you know, they set the standard. Those, it's not that all others should be killed, because if there were all other classes, if this were to be the case, then uh, Lenin should have begun <laughs> by killing himself. No, it's clear that he was a typical even upper middle class guy who really had no idea of real working classes. Like the irony is that if you look at some Lenin's letters, you know that for some time he was living in Switzerland and he was staying by some middle class artisanal family who had a house, they rented him a room, blah, blah. And Lenin wrote enthusiastic letters to friends. Now I see I'm in contact with ordinary people, workers. Fuck him, these were no workers. This was typical, not even lower middle class, you know, this. But nonetheless, what I want to say is that in Nazism also confronts the same problem, class struggle. But it doesn't do this operation. Let's shift the inexistent to the maximum intensity. On the contrary, it just wants to control the struggle by imputing the cause of the struggle to an external event. It's not because society is itself in itself antagonistic, it's because the Jews from outside introduce chaos and so on, and then to impose on it some kind of hierarchic order and so on and so on, where workers are still down, but they are taken care of, at least officially. You know, all this shit the relationship between capital and work shouldn't be just one of financial exploitation, uh, capitalists should be a kind of a father taking care of, blah, 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 all this idea of sentimental, more authentic relations between uh, master and servant, and so on and so on. So again, the moment you don't just say uh, multiplicity and then miracle of the event, but the moment you take into account that event is very precisely defined as where, how an event can intervene. Which is why maybe sometimes Badiou doesn't accentuate this enough. An event is purely structural. You can do the same thing, but if you do it a little bit too late, it's no longer an event. You know what I mean? You must do it at the right time. Sorry, did you want to? Or did you just, yeah, sorry, yeah, you know, yeah, this yeah. is the semantic misunderstanding. Often it happens to me, I don't know if the guy scratching his head, not you, or both, both. okay, sorry, yeah. This yeah, is called over-determination of nature and culture. I'm sorry, about please. self-reflexive nature of yeah. the event. Isn't it that he's trying to get at that it's either zero or infinity, pretty much, that there is no self-reflexiveness? Uh, we would have to go here to what he means by self-reflexiveness. It's good that you touch this topic, because uh, he... Uh, he, he, uh, I think that even now he struggles a little bit with this and for his own good it would be good if in a debate and again I'm not slandering him behind his back you can report anything you want like all That's the dirty like things that I can tell you for example this is my standard joke about him no I will immediately return to it I will not forget what you said for example do you know which movies he likes 
this is a standing joke between me and him. He knows that I always spread this slander, but it's true. Fridge is a medicine county. Yeah, yeah, that's one. Fridge is of the medicine county. He thinks it's a really great film. Then he has a soft spot for Armageddon, you know, this kind of <laughs> Nobody is perfect, I would say. <laughs> Sorry, but uh, let's, go, let's go on with this infinity and uh, event and so on. Uh, uh, one, yeah, 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 yeah. So in the sense that in being and event, he still claims that an event includes its own nomination. That is to say, uh, this is another way to say that an event is an event only for those who participate in it. For example, uh, uh, if you look objectively... Come down to your level, maybe let's take the orgasm as an event that... Why should it be an event? No, here I'm conservative. No, okay. Why should <laughs> orgasm be an, an event? an event that causes us to want infinite number of events. Uh, yeah. Okay, but why should this be an event? Like, okay, let me be extremely vulgar. Let's say I'm a sadist. Let's say I'm a sadist. Let's say I will go back, sorry, to test the waters. Let's say I'm a sadist and I want to, I want to, to, to I don't know, cut a, a needle into your eyes. What if I discover the desire to do it infinitely? I doubt this would count as a, you know what I mean? Let's talk about my example. Okay. Orgasm. Yeah. The event that, it, that inspires uh, infinite number of events. Like we always want more of it. Right? Orgasm is not an event. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> how should I put it? Yeah, okay, okay. But so what's the point? Do you think this is enough of a. Again, for Badiou, let's be precise. Event is something which intervenes at that point of symptomal torsion, the inexistent of the structure. Where do you have this in orgasm? I tend more to agree with Badiou. Who, yeah. you know, when he defines a situation, he says that every situation has this uh, not uh, infinite in the positive sense, like the infinity of the event, but the, the measureless. For him, enjoyment, jouissance is <coughs> infinite in the, in the more bad Hegelian sense of the it's boundless. And as such, it's open to this or that use. Which is why, for example, but you, I agree here with him, opposes opposes both standard versions of, you know, this old boring topic, sexuality and revolution. On the one hand, the conservative revolutionaries, like sexuality is the last trap of bourgeois ideology to catch us and, uh, uh, you know, the true revolutionary must uh, uh, forget about his sexuality, be ascetic. Or, on the other hand, this 68 stuff, you know, uh, 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 those in power rule us through uh, sexual oppression, sexual liberation is blah blah. I, I, I spontaneously to me, sexual enjoyment is more this formless, ex neutral. But inside of love, let's go back to your statement yeah. about love and procreation. Mm. Let's say an orgasm can be an event inside of the idea of procreation. Right? Right. Why not? What makes procreation more than just the animal? Well, you were making a point about sex outside of marriage um, no longer being illicit, right? Inside of the idea of love. Yeah, but nonetheless, it doesn't make it in itself more authentic. How should I put it? Uh, that's a nice question you touched here. I'm so sad we cannot go endlessly into this. But uh, I 
I had a great debate with Badiou here, very personal, not in any nasty sense. And uh, he also agreed with me that, uh, you know, in the West we have, you know, that famous book, how is the guy who wrote it? I forgot, my God, L'Amour and Occident, Love in the West. That great, it will come to me the name, he's a great French historian of ideas. Uh, it's, uh, it's even the, the great reference to Lacan, the, on the notion of courtly love, where the idea is, True love is not possible within marriage. The true love has to be transgressive. I totally, I'm opposed to this idea. So, back to you. Okay, it can be outside marriage, but it's not a condition. It's just a, it's Sorry, just a please go on. It's just a framework for the event. Yeah. I'm trying to establish a framework. But what would have been event here? Yes, you are after. Right? The yes. event would have been uh, inception, I guess. But why? What? Give me a precise definition. What? Is what makes the an creation of life as an event? Yeah, but again, why? I, I'm here more about you, an idealist. I mean, I think that you identify event too much with something beautiful, new, which happens. That's not enough. Isn't that a material view, though? That, uh related to. Yeah, but again, for but you, again, I'm returning to my old point. For but you to have an event, it must intervene into the symptomal point, this torsion, whatever, of a situation. As he emphasizes again and again, there are no universal events. Sorry? I said there must be an indiscernible for an event. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, sorry, that's the term I was using. I was, uh, uh, I was missing. Yes, you are right. That uh, For him, results is indiscernible. And the subject somehow sucks us out of the meaning out of the Yeah, yeah. So for him, an event would have been if orgasm becomes well, through love. You know that it's, it's there's always a fantasy in the um, in the um, in the you know, in the orgasm in the sense. The object is the fantasy. There's no indiscernible object. You've already created the object in the fantasy. Yeah, but nonetheless, okay. We cannot go into it. I'm tempted to say that it's... There is no object. I mean, there is no object. I don't know. One should be more tricky here. I mean, uh, how should I put it? You know, it's mystery. I, 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 I... It's complex. What really happens, not in biological sense, but... I just don't think that the um, notion of orgasm fits into the notion Well, I mean, I think, it, I think it would if you included, like, all the conditions for sexuality, going out to dinner, uh -huh. You know what, what, what which, maybe this is my melodramatic mind, but you know which situations interest me as potentially event. Did you see a shitty melodrama, but which is not totally bad? I liked it when I was younger, with Mary Streep and Robert De Niro, not the deer hunter, uh, uh, falling in love. Where they, they are both married, they start to meet, and then they decide to do it. They go to an empty apartment that is given to Robert De Niro to use it by a friend, and then they start to embrace, and they, they stop. They don't do it. This makes it an event, I claim. Because they are well aware that by doing it at that moment, at that precise moment, it would have meant it's just a cheap love affair. By not doing it, they assert it as... Zero. No, I know, I know you are back, yeah, you are, I had you in my mind, yeah. Okay, um, so... Oh, yeah, sorry, you are, sorry, I'm sorry, yeah, please. Should I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, okay, um, 
this is a very good conversation because the event has to introduce some form of rapture with all the grounds that have already been established with laws and norms. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a connection with sexuality because the event, what it does is opens up the field of possibilities, like yeah. what you suggested. Yeah. It, so it introduces infinity to a finite situation. And yeah, but not the infinity of the indiscernible. Again, Lacan said that the only thing that is infinite is the woman's orgasm. The only thing that is infinite yeah. is the woman's orgasm. Yeah, but I, I, I have, I must. Now we are entering another domain. I, with all my admiration for Lacan's encore, his seminar twenty, I claim that he oscillates there, getting dangerously close sometimes to this idea of men are fully within the symbolic order, but there is but women not fully. There is some aspect of infinite, incredible, intense enjoyment that women can only you know this to use that term precisely of subject supposed to know, as if woman is the subject supposed to enjoy fully. Yeah. Lacan is here much more ambiguous. I claim he, as it is always with Lacan, he treats like crazy, but that's why I like him, because he's truly creative in the sense that he's experimenting, taking one path, going back, the next one. Or, okay, to simplify it very much, I claim Lacan oscillates there between the two versions of how are we to understand the so-called, you know, we are talking now about these so-called formulas of, yes, I will give it back to you, yeah formulas of situation, uh, male, female. To put it very simply and elementary for Lacan, the main formula of situation is universality with an exception. You accept universality, but universality is founded in an exception. For women, it's uh, non-all, which means no universality, but this is what people tend to forget, also no exception. Now, how do you read this? The way I read it is, the way it is usually read, is men are fully within the phallic symbolic order, their jouissance is phallic, which means already mediated by the signifier, symbolic fantasies, blah, blah. <coughs> Women are only partially, only a part of a woman is involved in this Oedipal, symbolic castration dynamic, you also have an aspect of this unspeakable other jouissance which is absolute as exemplified in the mystical trance of Saint Teresa and so on and so on. I, I think this is a misreading and I think that insofar as we understand... So the danger would be the... Uh, yeah. You talk about the danger of Badu's theory here. Be the reduction to uh, an answer, a universality, right? No, 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 no. Sorry. Now I'm making another point. I even don't see directly the link with Badiou. Okay. The point about okay, I, I will tell you. Now I have the link with 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 uh, Badiou, but it's uh, more. If you want to get an idea of this phallic male position, it would have been in. St. Paul, the way that you interpret wonderfully St. Paul, that uh, Paulinian uh, dialectic of law and its transgression. It is the excess transgression which grounds the law, and it's the law which grounds transgression. That would be the male dynamic, 
as it were. And, but, uh, and so for me, love, the way Paul understands love, would be formally, in this purely formalized term, on the feminine side, non all, and so on, and so on. But let me just finish with the previous line, because it's important. What I'm tempted to say is that the way I read it, it's that uh, if the male position is the position of within the symbolic order, but with an exception, then precisely the idea of a woman who is this absolute woman, outside language, fully enjoys in a trance, is a male fantasy. This is the ultimate male fantasy. This is not the non-all and so on. Even Lacan can be here... One can argue against Lacan through his own example, which is very unfortunate for him. Saint Teresa. Fuck him. Read Saint Teresa. He was, she was in no way outside the symbolic. She was writing like crazy. All her, you know how much she was writing? Her mystical experience, as nice analysis, I think, by Roland Barthes and other demonstrated, her mystical experience is all in her writing. Also, isn't it a... St. Teresa's statue, isn't it the Bernini's statue? Yeah, that's, yeah, it's yeah. Not, it's Bernini, St. Teresa. Yeah, that's also a male fantasy, of course. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Bernini and, uh, you know, the greatest movie of uh, last year, The Total Sheet. My God, it's not good, and I wanted to like it. The Demons and... Uh, the Angels and the Demons. And the Demons, you also... <laughs> <laughs> we are all waiting for the people. Is it out in one month from now, the new? The new one? The new Dan Brown. Don't you follow world culture? Okay, let's stop this obscenity, sorry. No, but seriously, what I want to say is that the way I read it is that the very idea of behind, the very idea that there is one side of woman, the mask, the civilized woman, but that beneath there is the true absolute woman, you know, she, like she with capital S, like, you know, that famous male chauvinist Ritter Haddock, the author of Solomon Mines, uh, novel. Uh, he also wrote a novel, She, where in the middle of Africa, a dark kingdom where an absolute woman. This is the male fantasy. So the way I read Lacan is that this other jouissance he is talking about, it's not outside language, but it's on the contrary, fully in language. That woman is more in language than men. The fact that woman is not all in language doesn't mean part of her is out. It means she has no exception, as Lacan puts it. Non-all at the same time means there is nothing which is not in, which is outside. Lacan is much more paradoxical here. So I claim that Lacan's point is that universality needs a founding exception. Once again, once you are on the feminine side, you no longer need an exception. So I think, again, all this topic, even Kristeva falls for it. No. You can't relate that to infinity, infinity and zero, though? I mean, your, your very examples like right that? Uh, I think I'm not good enough here. My simple answer, it's an extremely simple answer, would have been that in order to do this properly, but I'm too stupid and confused now to do it, would have been to relate to all these... Uh, it wasn't, my God, Frege, who did that? Who did the, the different infinities? But you like him. Cantor. To go to Cantor, different types of infinity. That, that, to put it in very stupid terms, male infinity, this phallic, the phallic orgasm that you mentioned, is still, I would say, no, that, okay, I'll put it in this way. When you said, when you have one orgasm, you want to go on and on. But, 
the main formula would have been this, the simple pre-Cantorian infinity. On, more, on, more, more, more. It's still, it's kind of a linear simple infinity. You need to get the infinity of feminine jouissance. You need My, a different yeah, type of... was a, an idealist, finite, more or less idea. I was trying to... I know, but, okay, what I wanted to aim at, but we will not have time today, today, would be the Hegelian notion of infinity as self-relating without uh, exception. I wanted to to come at this later. But again, the point, let's at least conclude with this. What I wanted to conclude here is that, again, uh, beware how you read Lacan. That don't fall into this trap of, you know, feminine jouissance, some mysterious feminine excess, and so on, and so on, and so on. Which is why I think women should like that apparently anti-feminist idea of, although it was proposed by a woman, as you may, must know, of femininity as a masquerade. This means precisely that woman is more of a subject. Masquerade means like onion, you know, you just have layers of masks, in the middle it's nothing. What's this nothing? This nothing is the Cartesian subject, who is a nothing. And if you read German idealists, at its deepest, for example, Schelling somewhere had a whole idea where she claims subjectivity at its most radical is feminine. This is why, incidentally, I'm pro-Cartesian. You know that the standard feminist line, unfortunately, is Descartes is a male chauvinist, his cogito may appear neutral, but is in reality masculine. I think, on the contrary. It's feminine, which is why it's not an accident. I don't know if you know this. It's simply a historical data. Do you know that Descartes' first and most enthusiastic public were women? Not only the Queen Christina in Sweden, but... Men. Okay, but nonetheless, let's go back to point... Uh, maybe this will bring it closer to all of you. Uh, but you, that were... But you, event. Okay, so uh, again, I think you can deliver... But you, you can save but you from that standard reproach by, look, uh, always remembering it's not an inherent property which makes an event an event. It's the way it intervenes into a structure. Where I, uh, so again, in his uh, letter 11 month, being an event, he still has this theory that an event includes its nomination which means, in another way, that an event is an event only for those who are engaged in the event. His own example is, for example, French Revolution. If you are an objective historian, you will never discover there was something, the great French Revolution, then you can play the game by that, how she called it, François Furet, the great liberal historian, French, whose whole point, but you knows this, is to de-eventamentalize, how should put it, to un-event the French Revolution, to show it wasn't a big thing, it was just some local French confusion because blah, 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 and so on. So, no, this is why, but you is very precise here when he refers to event as a grace, miracle. And, but the way he understands miracle is in the, in the Jansenist and Calvinist sense, 
You know what? How? You know that uh, uh, it's a very beautiful theory of a miracle where they claim miracle doesn't violate uh, the, the laws of nature. Miracle appears as a miracle only to those who believe in it. They don't. Miracle is not something that you can convince. Like you don't believe, I do. Okay, I will show you a miracle. I can stand on my feet and jump up twenty meters. No, no, no. Miracle is, and in this same sense, there is no. There are no neutral events. Events are events only for the engaged. But 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 let me go on. The problem, and then you can counterfire. I just want to where you should uh, do to. But you, you know, you showed me for you that famous image of balls hanging. No, it's not famous, but yeah. Okay, but <laughs> you should maybe do a little bit of this procedure to but you for his own good. No, yeah. squeeze his balls at this. So one later in his logic of the world, he drops this. He no longer claims that an event includes its own nomination. What uh, uh, He now, on the one hand, tends more and more to emphasize a gap between an event and its nomination. An event is something that just explodes, and then, for example, in, in examples of Christianity, Christ, resurrection, it doesn't matter if it happened or not, is the event. But it became an event only through its proper nom uh, nomination with, with, with Paul, not even in the Gospels, with Paul. Now, the problem here is the following one, and but you know it. Uh, is there an, and I claim, maybe I'm wrong, that he tends to oscillate here a little bit. Is an event already in itself an event, or does an event only retroactively through its nomination and through fidelity of its followers, what Bakyu calls in these religious Marxist terms the patient work of love, where you work to inscribe the event into the order of being. Here I claim he is looking for different ways, like uh, sometimes he sounds almost for me, a little bit too close to deconstructionism, in the sense that an event is only a retroactive effect of its nomination. That something happens, it can be nothing. Retroactively, it becomes an event. But, uh, for Infinite example... Infinite possibility or nothing. Sorry? Infinite possibility or nothing. Yeah. There's the paradox. Yeah, but, uh, but, but again, uh, uh, if you say this, it... Which equals what? Yeah, then I think you get a little bit too close to this standard. That's, that's the danger, I understand. Yeah, to the danger, no? Uh, so, uh, because, uh, but sometimes, he sounds, again, as if it's only the nomination which literally creates the event. On the other hand, sometimes he plays on an event as some traumatic occurrence for which we always look for a proper nomination, but we find it difficult even to find a proper name for it. For example, when he writes about, uh, about uh, 20th century or 19th century revolutions, sometimes he says that maybe all this Marxist terminology of class struggle is a wrong name. But fuck it, a wrong name for what? So is it as if... This, 
you know, he as it were oscillates, oscillates, uh, oscillates between between these two. So my solution here is uh, prior work. he wouldn't agree. No, it's it's uh, of course the Hegelian, Lacanian, both at the same time. Uh, my solution is even very uh, uh, is that no, uh, I want to avoid both deviations as a Stalinist, right wing and left wing. Okay. Uh, right wing deviation would be a naive substantialism. There really is an event, a miracle happens, whatever, and then we try to catch up with it, what it is, blah, blah, blah. But as we like to say, there is a remainder, we never can do it, blah, blah. Then the other deviation, left wing, would be this deconstructionist game. All there is is only a flux uh, game language and retroactively, but in a totally contingent way, some things are elevated into the status of event and so on. Uh, my well, I quote what he said last night, and that seems to be yeah. the deviation. He yeah. said, this is, you know, this theory of this is basically against the brutal use of dualism. So I think that that's the absolute Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, okay, so let me go on. So, yeah, no, but... The negation of Yeah, but my... Okay, so my... But let, let's go back to the event. Uh, my solution would be the following one. Again, maybe you know this. I often this example, but I found it beautiful. Uh, in my books, what happens in Einstein, I simplify very much. I know, but to simplify. In Einstein's passage from special to general theory of... Relativity. As you probably know, the key, one of the key moments of Einstein there is this, how do you pronounce it in English? Curved space, curvature of space. That the space is not straight, blah, blah. No? Okay. Uh, incidentally, this has wonderful uses for psychoanalysis because what Lacan calls desire, you know, the paradox, to put it in a very simplistic term, of curved space is that precisely sometimes the shortest way to get from A to B is not the straight line. But because the space is curved, it's faster if you go around. But that's desire. Isn't the whole point of human desire that... Sorry, again, I cannot... I love Christina. If I just jump on her and screw her... No, you must... You know, the whole point is to make a detour. No? In other words, the space of desire is a curved space. No? Okay. But... You know what's the shift? How to account for this curvature, curved space? In, uh, 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 Einstein first defines matter, in the inertia of matter, stuff, as that which curves space. To put it very simply, without matter, empty space would have been like geometrical flat. Then you put like let's say it would be like this, you put some matter here and it curves the space, so that the curvature of the space is the effect of matter. Ah, but then comes the Hegelian genius, no? You know what is then Einstein's move? To turn things around, to say that no, the curvature of the space is original and matter is just an effect of the curved space. I love this purely formal materialism. You can get rid of this. You know, I hate this vulgar materialism where you think, oh, it must smell, you must feel it, like the inertia, inertia of matter. I claim that today, and here I agree with you, let me go back to that 
point of infinity and so on. Did you notice something very strange? Now, in the 20th century, it started with Heidegger. Uh, finitude become more and more the last resort of spiritualism, idealism. Before, in the 19th century, to be for finitude was usually the vulgar materialism. Only finite, real, material things as this, infinity is a metaphysical dream, and so on and so on. But then, today, more and more, it is science in its pure formalism which gets more and more infinities, and here, but you is right, as far as I can understand. I talked with some mathematicians partially, I hope I understood them, that this is the result of Cantor revolution, where you know what's the point. Till Cantor, infinity was linked to the one. Infinity was the transcending one and so on. From Cantor, you have a material, multiple infinity, infinity of the multiple. But what I'm saying is that, for example, look at the cinema. Isn't it strange that the author, who is maybe the most spiritualist movie maker of the 20th century, the Russian guy, Tarkovsky, is at the same time the most materialist? You, do you remember how a spiritual experience looks in Tarkovsky? It's not up heaven. You immerse yourself deeply into the earth, all the dirt, mud, water, and so on. This idea of materialized spirituality. So I think that uh, in this sense we live in paradoxical time where finitude no longer acts, but to emphasize that we humans are thrown into a world, always a finite situation, precisely this limitation <coughs> opens then up a space for some divine spiritual otherness. Of course, as they will say, this is uh, 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 post-metaphysical otherness. You know all this crap, I don't like it, maybe you do, pseudo-Levinasian or whatever, where you say, of course there is no God as a positive entity, but there is a void of otherness. And out of this void, some ex is addressing us and so on, you know, all this uh, again and so on and so on. So in this sense, I totally agree with Badiou when he claimed that today, this kind of a what Einstein did, this kind of a, that this is a very materialist move, not idealist. This idea that uh, it's not that you need some substantial reality which curves the space, but that curved space comes first. And, and uh, uh, the inertia of matter is just some kind of illusory, imaginary perception of curved space. Now you will say, I'm dreaming here. Let me conclude with, and we are back to Hegel here, because my idea, ah, you thought I lost my track. I often do, but this time exceptionally I didn't. We are back at Hegel. Because I think that this passage, to put it in very simplistic terms, this passage from uh, first, a special theory of relativity, that is to say, the space is curved because of the presence of matter to the second stage where the curvature of the space is original, is, in philosophical terms, the, 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 the shift from Kant to Hegel. Kant still needs the thinking itself, which, as it were, curves the space, for Hegel, and this is the primary, and none will say, but these are totally abstract, stupid, 
associations, what this has to do with reality. You allow me to conclude, then you get your shitty break or whatever. <laughs> Two examples, one from politics, the other from uh, psychoanalysis. Trauma. Uh, how does Freud relate to trauma? Let's take the most classical example, although I don't see what is so traumatic about it. I would rather like to see it, if it would not make me throw out. You know, Wolfman again, you know, Freud reconstructs the trauma of at one year and a half or on well, the small boy observing uh, parents copulating a tergo. But look closely at what Freud says there. His point is not the guy was doing nice and then, oh my God, he saw this father screwing my mom, what does this mean, whatever, and he was traumatized. It's totally, uh, read Freud, he says that when the child saw this, one and a half year or it doesn't matter, there was absolutely nothing traumatic about it. He simply registered it. As a nothing, neutral. It remains but it's totally latent, not even as a latent trauma, but just as some kind of a neutral trace. Then, only later, to be precise, at when, I don't know, when does it start, I think around four, five, six, that children start to bother about the origin of how the children, and when they start to develop these sexual, so-called children sexual theories. At that point, being perplexed by what is sexuality, he re-traumatized this neutral experience. He elevated it as an answer. It was, it was elevated, uh, resuscitated as a traumatic fantasy. So, you see the point. The point is, first there was, let's say vaguely, that a trauma curves the space of our mental perception. In what sense? In even in almost literal primitive sense. Let's say you have a certain straight geometric classification of space. Left, right, up, down, apples, whatever. A neutral category. Then let's say there's something traumatic happens. Like, sorry for the tasteless. You were, you saw something horrible or you were attacked, beaten, rape, whatever, I don't know, an, an, sorry for the tasteless idea, an apple was stuck up to your F on the fourth floor in a certain part of the city, then of course this would have literally curved your space. You would probably blank, how should I put it, erase that and you know, it would no longer be straight. But uh, for Freud, this is the lesson of uh, when uh, it the, the so-called traumatic fact, the small boy observing the parent screwing at ergo, didn't curve his space. His mental space got curved by a totally symbolic, it means within the symbolic order, enigma of sexuality. He had blanks there, so you get my point. He was, his space was curved, and then he mobilized the stuff, the matter of this memory as a trauma to fill in the gap. So the trauma is first a formal trauma in the sense of the mental space is curved. Now you will say, what can this mean politically? Ah, I give you a very simple example, the one we were already talking about, anti-Semitism. 
Precisely, fascists are Kantians, Marxists, and Hegelians. In what sense? For fascists, clearly, the social space is symmetrical, non-curved in an ideal sense. If you have a nice Aryan or whatever, for example, Tibetan, do you know that Nazis loved Tibet? You know why? Their dream was that all the land down is already penetrated by, uh, penetrated by, by Semitic corruption, and that you have to go up. For, for them, Tibet was even more than Nordic Europe, the island of not yet corrupted by, by Semitic decadence society. Okay, but let me go on. So, uh, 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 here you have, the idea is then, we have a nice harmonious social edifice, juice is the matter which intervenes and curves the space, introducing imbalance, blah, blah. For a Marxist, the social space is curved originally, because of class struggle and so on, antagonism, and the Jew as the trauma comes second, as a fake, to fill it in, to fill in, uh, to fill in the curve, and so on and so on. The last conclusion to be drawn from this is that this is, I think it's crucial to read the Lacanian notion of the real in this way. It's not a substantial real. It's not, I'm here nicely and then something terribly, uh, it's, it's kind of a purely formal real. It's just some inherent impossibility. You know, it's a very dialectical Hegelian thought. It's not, I would have been fully what I am, but something prevents me an obstacle from being. No, it's I am blocked in myself and every positive cause comes secondary, already fills in the gap of a certain inherent impossibility. What has this to do with Hegel? That's the whole point of what Hegel calls the primacy of external, of, sorry, inherent self-contradiction with regard to external opposition. For Hegel, external opposition always comes second with regard to inherent self-contradiction, self self and so on and so on. You know what? Let's make a break and then we go on. Okay, so we did a little bit of identity. Let me go on with uh, what does Hegel mean? Just a couple of simple examples, just that you get the motion. What does Hegel mean by negation of negation? It's a self-related negation, but in a very precise sense. It's not, sim it's not simply, you know, if, as but you explained yesterday, you have, let's say, two possibilities only, A or B, there is no third, so if you negate A, you get B, if you negate B, you get are back to A. No, no, no. It's something different, but I can even say that only the negation of negation is a radical, is a true negation. Or one can also put it in this way. The first negation moves within a certain field. It's only in a negation of negation that the field itself is negated. What do you mean by this? Okay, okay, let's go to examples. Uh, 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 I think I use a little bit of this, if you know it, 
but it's not so popular, which I like. This theological book of debate that I'm engaged with, Monstrosity of Christ, with uh, that uh, theologist John Milbank. Uh, uh, I think I refer there to Wagner, Richard Wagner. He wrote already, in, when he was relatively young, a piece of drama which he then planned to put the opera Jesus of Nazareth. And there, I think, he interprets in a wonderful way this, uh, you know, these big formulas of Jesus, this radicalization of the sin. Katie, can you close Okay, so we did a little bit of identity. Let me go on with uh, what does Hegel mean? Just a couple of simple examples, just that you get the motion. What does Hegel mean by negation of negation? It's a self-related negation, but in a very precise sense. It's not, sim it's not simply, you know, if, as what you explained yesterday, you have, let's say, two possibilities only, A or B, there is no third, so if you negate A, you get B, if you negate B, you get are back to A. No, no, no. It's something different. One can even say that only the negation of negation is a radical, is a true negation. Or one can also put it in this way. The first negation moves within a certain field. It's only in a negation of negation that the field itself is negated. What I mean by this? Okay, okay, let's go to examples. Uh, 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 I think I use a little bit of this, if you know it, but it's not so popular, which I like. This theological book of debate that I'm engaged with, Monstrosity of Christ, with uh, that uh, theologist John Milbank. Uh, uh, I think I refer there to Wagner, Richard Wagner. He wrote already, in, when he was relatively young, a piece of drama which he then planned to put the opera Jesus of Nazareth. And there, I think, he interprets in a wonderful way this, uh, you know, these big formulas of Jesus, this radicalization of the single Jewish injunctions, like you know. It's not only if you, if you, if you have sex with a woman, uh, I mean, with, with uh, non-illegitimate, uh, uh, outside marriage sex, that you see it's already if you desire that, or all these famous asymmetrical formulas, or, uh, or if somebody, not I for an eye, but if somebody, how does Wagner interpret this? He gives a wonderful example, for example, of sex. Wagner starts with the simple opposition between sex within marriage, let's call it legal sex, and how should we call it? Illegitimate sex, cheating or whatever. And then he does, he says, of course, first one is the domain of the law, legal sex, and then he says, but uh, not only is illegitimate sex sinful, but sex within marriage, which is not grounded in love, is even a greater sin. 
And then he does a wonderful rhetorical term where he says, because illegitimate sex doesn't undermine marriage from within. It just, from the outside, it transgresses marriage. But he says, sex in marriage without love ruins the idea of marriage from within. It's a kind of a corruption from within, which is why this is the true... Uh, uh, you get my point? If, for Wagner, uh, sex outside marriage is a simple negation of a proper sex, sex in marriage without love is the negation of a negation in the sense of radical destruction, the true catastrophe. And then, very nicely, in a way, with reference to Proudhon, uh, Wagner does the same with uh, property and theft. He says, okay, we have legal property, of course it's bad to steal. But then he says, if you have legal property with which you exploit others, it's even worse than theft, because you undermine the ethical foundations of the notion of property from within. So, you, this would be at a very elementary level what Hegel aims at with his negation of negation. You start with an external opposition, let's say, legal marriage sin. But then you discover that the, the legal term already contains its own much more radical negation which, as it were, explodes, undermines the entire field. In other words, at the level of, for example, property. We have property and theft, but the ultimate result is, you know the saying of Proudhon, that property as such already is theft. It means you isolate it, steal it from the collective, and so on and so on. This is the mechanism, that first you have the external negation, and then you discover how the first term already is, in this sense, your its own negation. Property already is theft. Uh, how that, uh, uh, in Hegel, you find this, and that's the whole point of Hegel, in a wonderfully precise way apropos of the dialectic of law and crime. The elementary relationship is, of course, one of transgression. We have property, we have the law, and we have its violation, crime. But and then people usually think that the Hegelian dialectics is a kind of a negation of negation through judicial punishment. No, like rule of law, somebody breaks the law, negation, punishment is the negation of negation. No, I find very th many things very important here, where I'm fully a Hegelian, up to the point of madness. For example, to shock you, you know what is Hegel's defense of death penalty, no? That it's the ultimate recognition of... Uh, of of the criminal as a free human being. He said, uh, the only way to treat a criminal respectfully is to punish him, because only by punishing him fully, you treat him as a proper, autonomous human being. And incidentally, reading sometimes some kind of weird politically correct stuff, I can't almost to agree with it, because it sounds very politically correct, namely this duality which you sometimes find. You know how, for example, if a white man does something horrible, it's bad. If a black guy does it, it's uh, victims, slave circumstances, blah, blah. Of course this is true. But all I'm saying is we are walking in dangerous waters there. Because it's 
also you are also depriving him or her of the autonomy. The, you know, this is what is always false in this self-flagellation, self-humiliation of whites, you know. We want to be guilty for everything, even if there is now a civil war in some African independent states, these are still our consequences of our colonialism, etc. It is as if we whites, sometimes it reads like this, want to say, if we can no longer be white man's burden in the sense of we take care for and uh, are good colonial, that at least we want to be the ultimate bad guys, like whatever happens we are responsible for. But I, I claim that uh, often, how should I put it, uh, there is a hidden arrogance in this. You know, like in, uh, uh, I, I, uh, uh, you know who wrote, okay, so that I don't get lost in it again. Read the one whom I really appreciate, and he's not a soft liberal. If there was a hardliner, it's him, Franz Fanon. Yes. Read the last pages of his, that black skin, white masks where he says it's a wonderful, I claim, manifesto avant la lettre against political correctness. Where, he's, where he openly, he says, I find no satisfaction in eternally putting the blame on the white man and so on and so on. He sees the utter falsity of this eternal victimization. Are you aware you are guilty for slavery, five? And he, he even in advance attacks that black Athena stuff, where he said, I know it would be wonderful to discover that there was somewhere in Egypt, let us say, uh, 300, 400 years before Christ, a philosopher who was in constant dialogue with Plato and to prove that Plato stole ideas for him, but he says brutally, it matters nothing for liberation politically today, and so on, and so on, and so on. So, again, I fully subscribe to Fanon, you know, where Fanon is much more problematic for some people. All he said about uh, liberating force of violence and so on and so on. I'm not a soft guy here. All I'm saying is beware of this, uh, how should I call it, uh, beware of this, uh, you know, there is a way to humiliate yourself, which is really an, a perverted way to reassert your priority, for example, look at how in the politically correct universe, de facto how it works, how you are allowed to assert your identity. Uh, did you notice how the zero level standard is was a white Protestant man? There, if you assert your identity, if you say, I want my culture, my rituals, <laughs> you're uh, worse than Nazi. Then the logic is that, I'm very brutal here, but unfortunately I claim it works like this in reality. The further you go, the more they are allowed. If Inuits or Native Americans assert their identity, oh, wonder, they do, they do. Then the more you approach it, the worse it goes. Blacks, it's still okay, suspicion begins. Uh, then with Italians, ah, 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 no, Mexicans is okay, Italians suspicion began, Catholics, uh, but with white, now this, you will say, but this is correct, the people who are closer, as in racist way, who are more oppressing, should come. it is true, but the problem is that this position of the most guilty one, like, also reserves to you the universal position. These same white people who 
are ready to renounce their identity. Yes, we are guilty, the worst exploiters, we do not have right to celebrate our identity and so on. These same white people, nonetheless, usually act as the one who are, to put it bluntly, teaching all others how to reassert their identity. You know, there is always, again, uh, this lie that in renouncing your particularity as a white man, you secretly reassert your universality. There is a trick there. So I claim that uh, the best anti this is the true victory over colonialism. When, of course, they did it with a little bit of irony. I remember when Margaret Thatcher visited China. I don't know when it happened, when she was or even after. I think it was after her deposition. The Chinese president, in a toast, celebrated, said, we should be nonetheless, in spite of all the horrors, be grateful to British colonization of Hong Kong, Shanghai. It did uh, shake us out of our lethargy and so on and so on. Only the one who is already free can do this. The, the message was, we can say this because you are really no longer our master. We are in now. They no longer need to play this game, oh, but, and so on, and so on, and so on, no? So, uh, okay, but nonetheless. So, to go back to my point, the, with Hegel, yes, I was with punishment, and so on. Uh, uh, this is not the main point of Hegel, that you have the law, the law gets alienated or negated in the crime, and then the negation of negation, the punishment, the rule of law is re-established. This dialectic is, as it is very clear in Hegel, is, uh, as it were, and if you look at when Hegel speaks about uh, founding of states, great heroes, and so on, with another much more interesting dialectics, which is the opposite dialectics, that, that uh, it is not that crime is a subspecies of law, part of the, the self mediation dialectic of law, in the sense of, again, law, transgression of the law, crime, re-establishment. No, it is that law itself is a moment of crime, in the sense of law is universalized crime. Law is the crime. With Hegel, for example, he is very open here when he speaks, he can be quite brutal there, about great heroes, founders of state. He said, these are criminals who impose their crime as universal. And at that point, so that uh, it is rather law, the rule of law, which is a subspecies of crime, as it were. And uh, again, that's the, you can study it in detail about how Hegel is very clear that uh, uh, every power, uh, the origin, you know, as Benjamin would have put it and all that stuff, not divine, but uh, not divine violence, but, but, but mythic violence, and so on. This idea of violent origins of the law, and so on, and so on. So, in other words, uh, it's... it's uh, 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 okay, maybe this is enough for today. I would prefer to go into this stuff more in detail. Tomorrow we already did all that retroactivity stuff. Let's go a little bit on as far as we can, and then tomorrow we conclude Hegel, if it's okay with you, and then the last day we can maybe do some general stuff, which is still connected with Hegel, uh, ethics of psychoanalysis, and so on, all that stuff. Okay, uh, uh, one way to make clear 
what I was aiming at in this reading of Hegel, would have been uh, the distinction between potentiality and virtuality. You know that Cupid, okay, he refers to but you, the half-father of this speculative term, speculative realism, Kantan Meyasu. Maybe you know his book, it's an excellent book of ontology, uh, 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 After the Finitude. It's one big attack against this Kantian transcendental horizon finitude thinking. Okay, but let's not go into this. What interests me is the way this guy, Meyasu, proposes a distinction between potentiality and virtuality. Uh, his idea is that potentiality is a uh, is and along the same lines he distinguishes between chance and contingency. Potentiality is something possible that can happen but it is as such already inscribed as a possibility within the frame of what is possible at a certain level. For example, if you throw a dice, how do you call it, no, with six numbers, you have one six that it will be, I don't know which number, one, two, six, or whatever, no? So, of course, you can say that if you analyze it in detail, it's not it's not a change, but let us say at least it appears so. So, you throw it, one of the numbers will appear. It's a change and it's a potentiality. But for him, contingency is uh, when something, no, sorry, virtuality is something which emerges in a contingent way, is something which formally has the status of a miracle. This would be what Badiou called an event, something which emerges and which precisely you cannot reduce it to the set of what already pre-exists. Of what already, uh, already pre-exists. So his idea is that he tries to link this then to the relationship between, uh, between uh, time and space, that in, in uh, potentiality, space has priority over time. That is to say, what can emerge in the course of time is always already inscribed as a possibility in the spatial constellation. For example, again, you throw a dice, one of the six numbers. It's a chance, potentiality, but possibilities are realized which pre-exist. For him, virtuality is when something emerges as it were ex nihilo, from nothing in the sense that it's genuinely new. It's literally a product of time. You cannot reduce it to its causes. Or, as Meyasu puts it in very nice term, uh, that uh, it's the actualization, something happening, which creates its own possibility. You cannot isolate it in advance as possible. And uh, then, of course, I love this. Insofar as we do as we usually do, insofar as we understand God as this eternal, atemporal set, network of all possible worlds, God knew everything in advance. For him, I love this. Miracle is the ultimate proof of materialism. 
Because miracle means precisely that something happened which was not yet included into this matrix of all, this eternal matrix of all possibilities by God. Uh, okay, uh, what all I wanted to tell you is that then the great problem here, and here I disagree with Meyasu, incidentally, his reasoning is much more complex here. Because, sorry? Uh, uh, 